what that sound means. I know what that music is. It's another episode of That's Odd, starring the insufferable Johnny Townsend and the creepiest of creepers, Christopher Chavez. Welcome to That's Odd. Now, insufferable, does that mean that like I cause people to suffer? <laughs> or you don't suffer? Or I, don't I personally How does that don't work? suffer. I think it's. It, I think it's the, the kind of thing. I think it is a negative, dude. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is a negative. It's kind of like, oh god, this is the guy we don't want to have to deal. This is the guy yeah. that like. That's probably more accurate, though. To be fair, here's this is who the, the insufferable guy is. This is the guy you go to a work meeting, right? The work meeting's yeah. at three o'clock. You get off at four. It's three fifty nine, and he's like, you know what? I've got a question. Can you take uh, us back this- through all? those steps and you're like oh jesus we're here for another half hour this sounds like a very personal th- and thing that you may or may not have went through oh <laughs> uh, well you know anthony so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like that person who uh like the teacher you're in class and the teacher hasn't given homework yet and the bell's about to ring yeah and then that one kid's like um, excuse me you haven't given us our assignment for tonight right. Right. Yeah. Or or there was a quiz planned and like literally she forgot and then weren't we supposed to take a quiz today? Yeah. Oh, that's right, children. Take out your pens and papers. Close your books. <laughs> yeah. And then that kid wonder why they got picked on. I mean <laughs> So insufferable, Johnny Townsend. How are you, dude? I'm suffering. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta put up with me every day. Oh man! Oh man! Uh, so here we are, man. Another week for his or that's odd, not history creeps. Um, and I gotta say, another week. But let's be honest, dude. Like our stuff's kind of spotty in how it's released. I even even put history creeps up. When people listen to this, it'll be up. But it, the one we recorded should have been up like three or four days ago. Yeah, we're really good at this. This is we're professionals. Why do you think we should, dude? Why do you think we shuttered the the Patreon store? We were like, you know what? Nope, close it. Uh, put put the lock and the the what is it the chains and the and the padlock on the door, pull down the the shutters. Yeah, and what people don't know, and this is letting them in behind the curtains. Uh-oh. Uh oh. We have we do have. I believe I like I to say right letting them into. The, I like to say bringing them into the basement. Oh, that's, yeah, that sounds creepier. I like right. That. <laughs> yeah. We're letting so people we're, into the basement. Yeah, we're letting people into our uh, downstairs attic, and um, we. Do have currently stuff recorded for when we do open our Patreon back up. Oh yeah, six episodes actually. <laughs> yeah, we just haven't done it because we <laughs> want to get we want to make sure we're getting more. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Prepared. Uh, yeah, yeah. When we have uh, thirty episodes, Patreon <laughs> Patreon's coming back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, we want we want to feel like we deserve it. I guess is the best way to put it's it. It's going to be 2020, and they're going to be hear, think, hearing things referenced in like early 2019. Oh yeah, all that stuff is time sensitive. I <laughs> Some of it is right. Uh, there's yeah. one where we discuss a very, very, very big movie, uh, very in depth, and oh, by yeah. then, by then, like the the sequel to that will have come out by now. Yeah, Spider Man will be out by. Oh, spoiler alert! Sorry, Spider Man will be out by then. <laughs> That Spider Man comes out soon as of this recording. Uh, next weekend, as a matter of fact. Yeah, so yeah, that's, it's probably that's the. Listen, when people are listening to this, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm listening to it on the way to Spider Man because it came out tonight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. 
So uh, aside from, uh, you know, our punctuality being as creepy and scary as it is, uh, we've got some fun story. I'm assuming fun. Mine's kind of, it sounds awesome. You hear about this guy and you're like, wow, like this, like this is straight history. This is super, you know, this guy was important in history. And then we get to the the side of it where you're like, wait, what? I don't know about yours. You said you weren't going to tell me what you're doing today. Uh, mine's, uh, how can I put this? Mine's fun. I think it's the best way to just put it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because mine, mine courts the, the you know, it, it, it travels that line of like, is this creepy or is it odd? Because it's like, really? This dude did this? I am intrigued. Yeah, yes. let's do it. Let's Matter of fact, in. let's jump into that. Uh, that that's odd time machine that that's odd or the that's odd time machine uh we're going back to the 1400s we're going back to the feudal days in france we're going back to a gentleman by the name and i'm going to tell you right now i don't know how to pronounce it it's spelled g-i-l-l-e-s is that gills giles gillies gilly gilly <laughs> Do you know what I'm referencing there from SNL? Yeah, sorry, not loud. Yeah. Oh God. Okay, so that's how I'm going to call him, Gule de Ray. Okay. <laughs> uh, he was a baron. Uh, was also a knight and a lord from uh, an area. So back in the feudal times in the 1400s in France, they had these like feudal, um, what do you call territories, right? Like these these big plots of land that were you know dukes and duchesses reigned over uh one of them was called Brittany, so that's going to come into play in part of his history here uh but here's the cool thing and uh, one of the most important uh significant historical things was this guy fought side by side with joan of arc you know joan of arc is right oh yeah for sure that's she's a a humongous uh historical figure for sure She's a she's considered one of France's huge like biggest heroines, right? And I'm talking about yeah. like the female version of a hero and not the drug. Um, but she had a huge part in the Hundred Years' War. She had a Thank huge. Thank you for clearing that up. <laughs> I was, I was, I was um, confused. So I'm going to give you a little bit about her when we get to her a little later. Uh, but currently, we're going to talk about Gilles, uh of France, right? 1940s France. So uh, it's probably pronounced Giles or Giles, but I'm going to say Gilly. Gilly was probably born in late 1405. Uh, he was actually born in a castle. Can you imagine saying like you were born in a castle? <laughs> That's nobody would believe you. Yeah, right. <laughs> but back in those days, it was like the feudal times, right? So we're talking castles. We're talking, you know, knights and serfs and kings and queens and uh, rooks and bishops, right? Uh, King me. Yeah. Oh no, it's uh, checkmate. Never mind. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Quick but side the- note. Uh, <laughs> Checkers or chess, which is better? Oh, chess. I mean, I'm the other way around, but it's purely because I, I'm quite too dumb to understand all the rules to, to chess. <laughs> Checkers, I got I, instantly. I love chess because of because of you know all the strategy that comes into play, and I feel like chess becomes one of these things, almost like poker, where it's 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 kind of like it's not just playing what's happening in the game itself; it's playing the person, right? You got to read the person yeah. and figure out how they're playing as well. Anyway, oh, yeah. back I mean, you're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, back to feudal Japan uh, or Japan. Back to feudal France in 1405. Uh, Gurley was born in a castle uh, to his family there. He was, uh, by all means, he was an intelligent child, speaking fluent Latin, uh, illuminating manuscripts, ma- basically saying like he read certain manuscripts uh, and was able to, you know, tell you the gist in a way where you'd be like, "Holy <laughs> crap! I never understood it that way." Um, 
And he also, you know, as he was growing up, he divided his education between military disciplines and moral and intellectual development. So basically, he was he was uh, about academia, but he was also about you know serving his country. Um, his father and mother died in ni- in 1415, so he and his younger brother were put into like the care of their grandfather through his mother's side. Uh, this guy's name was Jean de Crayon. And I'd like to tell you that he was the creator of Crayola crayons, but that is not true. Uh, this guy, though, Crayon, he was a schemer. This guy liked to try to make money a quick buck. And he knew that the way to get money and the way to, to you know, basically set yourself for life was you had to get married to some sort of royalty. So he kept trying to marry off his his grandson, this this twelve year old kid, Gilly. Right, uh, the first time he tries to marry him off to a four year old girl, she was the richest heiress in Normandy. Think about that, dude. To a four year old? Yes. Think about this is think about this time, man. Like you have no say, man. You have zero say. You're when right. you were four or five, six, seven, twelve, whatever. Whoever was taking care of you, whoever your guardian was, your parents, your grandfather, your uncle, if they so wished, they could go and make deals with other guardians and say, hey, we're going to marry our two kids just to you know, grow our wealth. And you have no say in that. You've got to do it. So right. 12 years old, Gilly is trying, his grandfather is trying to put him you know, into a marriage with this, this four-year-old girl, uh, Jean Paynell. She was the richest heiress in Normandy. And it failed. Um, so then he tried again. He tried with the uh, the niece of the Duke of Brittany, which was this this plot of land, this this territory, right? Uh, her name was Beatrice de Rohan. Uh, he tries to get them hooked up. Doesn't work. That fails as well. You think he'd give up, right? No, no. but just like Brittany, he said, hit me, baby, one more time. Exactly. Hit me, baby, one more time, November 30th, 1420, or as he liked to call it, 1420. Uh, Crayon <laughs> substantially increased his grandson's fortune by successfully marrying him to Catherine de Thor. So you're talking five years later. He is now 17 years old. He gets married to this girl uh, who is uh, – she's of she's from Brittany as well. She's heiress of La Vendée and – Potu. And I'm sure French listeners will sit here going, oh my gosh, are you sure? How could this be? Right? Uh, for you, and, yeah, for you and I, it's like, oh, cool. Right? Um, yeah. yeah, they got married. They only had one child a few years later, uh, nine years later. Uh, during this time, like I told you, he was into the military, right? So part of the French uh, French history is during the thirteen late 1300s um, or early 1300s, 1341 to 64, there was this huge war called the Breton War of Succession. And the idea behind this was that there was this plot that was against the Duke of Montfort um, of Brittany. I'm sorry, Montfort and uh, this other faction were fighting over uh, Brittany, right? So it was called the Blois, the Blois faction and Montfort. These two factions fought over control of Brittany. Uh, the Montfort won, okay? Uh, and our guy, Gurley, aligned himself with this side. He said, you know, I believe these guys are the rightful rulers of this kingdom. These are the people that I want to uh, align myself with. Uh, 
However, the Bloy faction refused to relinquish their rule. They're like, I don't care if you beat us. We're not giving up the we're not giving up our, our land. Matter of fact, we're gonna take your Duke prisoner, Duke John the Sixth. Uh now Gilly at this time is 16 years old. Now put this into perspective. We go to war with another country, right? Yeah. President Trump is our leader. Uh, the mm, leader yeah. of uh, of Canada is is uh, what's his name? Justin Trudeau. We start fighting each other. We win. Okay. Justin Trudeau says, "Tough luck. I'm not giving up Canada. Matter of fact, I'm kidnapping Donald Trump. That's what happened here." Okay. Yeah, and we're like, finally. <laughs> uh, Gilly is a 16-year-old kid. 16-year-old kid who decides, I'm on America's side. They won. Let me go talk to Justin Trudeau and convince him to let let uh, the Duke go. And not only do that, but you know, kind of give up the land as well. He did that. This 16-year-old goes in, waltz into the, this opposition side, and works out the release for the Duke, uh, and he get, ends up being rewarded all kinds of land and and money and 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 titles. Um, basically, it, was, it says that later on, you know, he ends up commanding the royal army. He becomes the commander of the royal army, distinguishing himself uh, for the bravery on the battlefield during the renewal of the Hundred Years' War. So the Hundred Years' War kicks up again. There's all this fighting going on. He's out there as as the commander in the royal army. And he makes himself, you know, he ends up getting medals and stuff because of bravery on the battlefield. But it's during this time in 1429 that he fights alongside Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc is is trying to help their side win. Uh, it's it's almost kind of like this this civil warish kind of thing happening in France, right? Joan of Arc is famous because she was a female who disguised herself as a male so that she could fight in this war, and she also said that. She felt that their side was going to win because she had visions. She was visited by the Archangel Mike, Michael, uh, Archangel Michael, uh, and a few of the a couple other saints. And these saints basically said that the true person to the throne was so and so king, and that she was going to back him. And so she did. Um, and when they found out, it, it was when they found out that she was a female. That's when everything went crazy. They put her in prison. Um, they ended up burning her at the stake because of of all things the the legit charge while she was burned at the stake was cross-dressing can you believe that yeah it's ridiculous yeah because back then cross-dressing was a th- that was uh, was almost like sacrilege it was almost like saying you know <laughs> god is dead or some crazy shit like that like you couldn't yeah. like you do that you're put to death and the fact was is she did that right um even though she did it for the good of the country and even though she helped them win and even though all this happened uh, this 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 went down. She ended up being burned at the stake. Uh, now, Gilly, our boy Gilly here, he wasn't there for that. He never witnessed the burning of the stake, but he did fight side by side with her. Um, after that, around 1434-35, he decided to start pulling away from military and public life. He wanted to do his own interests, okay? So this guy goes and constructs uh, a building called the Chapel of the Holy Innocents. All right. He's got all this money and he's got all of this wealth and everything he's built from from all of his exploits on the battlefield and in public life that he starts to use this money to build a, a temple, a church. Uh, 
And he doesn't go out and get like a priest to come, you know, officiate. He decides he's going to be the officiate at this church. And he has all kinds of robes that he wears. He designed them all himself. Um, another thing he does is he decides he wants to write his own play, his own theatrical play. And it's this monstrous spectacle. I, I'm not even going to try to say the title of it. It's all in French, but it's, it's something about uh, Mr. Something of New Orleans, okay, of Orleans. The play consisted of more than 20,000 lines of verse, requiring 140 speaking parts and 500 extras. A Bro, a play. Okay, I don't think, I really don't think Shakespeare went that crazy. I really don't. Even in his biggest of plays, I can't see 500 extras, including the 140 people who have to have speaking parts, and every one of them memorizing 20,000 lines of verse. By the time this thing went to production, he was almost bankrupt. So much so that he started selling his property as early as 1432, uh, 1432 just to support his extravagant lifestyle. By March of 1433, he had sold all of his estates except of his wife's and all of his property. Only two castles remained in his possession. Half of the total sales and mortgages was spent on the production of the play. That means like you, Johnny... Let's say you owned your parents' house and you owned the land that they lived on. And let's say you owned a few acres behind you. And then down the road, you owned a whole bunch of acres and a farmhouse. And down the road from that, you own a building. You know, That's like yeah. you saying you're selling all of that and half of it you're putting into your, your play, your dream uh, opus, right? Right. What the – what is with these guys, right? What is with these guys that seem to have this out of nowhere, this this snap and go into total madness? Do you think maybe it's it's war, the battlefield? Like, what is this? Yeah, that's that takes. You got to really believe in what you're doing. <laughs> that's a that's a giant <laughs> risk, right? <laughs> Dude, in total, six hundred costumes were constructed, worn once, okay, and then discarded yeah. and constructed <laughs> anew for next the next performance so basically he said we're gonna have a play everybody's costumes are created wear them tonight when you're done throw them in the trash we're gonna give you all new costumes for your next one tomorrow night oh yeah but sir what about the following night we're gonna do this every night for as long as this i can continue to afford this that that's crazy when's the last time you went to a play or a theater production it's been a while. I love them, though. I really okay. like them. I enjoy them When quite you a bit. go, do they supply you with unlimited food and drink? No. Yeah, he did. Gilly was about like, yo, you're coming to see my play? I'm going to make sure you're fed and, and drunk. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> right? By 1435 in June, his family was like, look, you got to stop this shit, okay? So they went to Pope Eugene the, the, the fourth and basically um, said, look uh, – you have to call this whole chapel of holy innocence. You got to disavow this. Say that this is nonsense. This is not a, a recognized church. This is not a recognized uh, part of our religion. Uh, and do something about this guy who's spending all of our fortune and our family's inheritance. Right? Uh, Pope said, "Nah, sorry." Um, and so instead, they went straight to the king. So July second of fourteen thirty-five, a royal edict was proclaimed. You know what that is, right? That's the dude that comes riding on the horse and the guy in front of him goes and they unroll this thing and says, by royal decree of the king, right? Yeah. King says, look, stop. You're not allowed to do this. 
you are a spendthrift. So basically, you're, you're like you can't handle money. You're spending money like a maniac. So he literally, the king wrote into like this edict that you are forbidden to sell any more property. Not allowed to. Uh, nobody, no subject of Charles the seventh was allowed to enter into any contract with them. So anybody that worked for the King, anybody that had, uh, provisions that ended up falling up under the King, they're not allowed to work with this guy. They're not allowed to make deals with him or give him any kind of money so that he can continue doing this nonsense. Right. And the people yeah. who were in, in control of his castles were forbidden to sell them back or get rid of them. So if he sold you a castle and he came back, was like, look, I'll buy it back from you, right? You're not allowed to sell it back. You can't get rid of it. You can't make money off of the castle he sold you. Yeah, that's, yeah, why? I mean, this, look, this so isn't, you're just not, yeah, you're just not going to do it then. This right? isn't even the odd part, okay? I'm going to finish this part up. We're going to go into the odd part. So this guy, his credit fell immediately. His creditors got on yeah. him like crazy. He started borrowing from friends and family, anyone that could. He started using different manuscripts, books, and clothing. As like Literally, he'd have things that were worth so much money, and he would use it as, as security. Like, here, give, I'll give you this. Hold on to it. I'll pay you back when I make my money, but I need that five bucks. Um by the time he left Orleans in late August or early September of 43, uh, 1435, sorry, 43, Jesus, uh, the, town <laughs> the town was littered. The entire town was littered with precious objects that he was forced to leave behind. Like they were just kind of laying around, right? Like, like paintings that were worth all kinds of money, golden thrones, uh, pieces of jewelry, just kind of laying everywhere because, I mean, nobody had use for them and, you know, he had to leave him. There's nothing he could do with that. Here's the thing. The edict did not uh, apply to Brittany, and the family the family was unable to per, per, uh, persuade the duchy of Brittany to enforce it. So he runs off to Brittany. Here's where things get really weird, all right? Okay. In 1438, according to testimony at his trial by priest Eustish Blanchet and the cleric Francois Prelati, Girly sent out, he sent this guy, Eustish Blanchett, to find people who knew alchemy. You know what alchemy is, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, the, it's the idea of changing, uh, what is it, like stones and stuff to, to precious metals and stuff using magic? Yeah, it's mainly people wanted to turn stuff into gold. Yeah. Uh, also, while you're at it, while you're out there looking for these guys that can turn, turn things into gold, also look up guys who are good at demon summoning. Okay, yeah. What if somebody can do both? Summon golden demons. Oh, I tell you what. Gilly would have been all about that. Uh, so his guy that he sent out, this Blanchett guy, he contacted Prelati, this this other guy, uh, the cleric, uh, who was, who, who was in, in Florence, and persuaded him uh, to come and work with him. Having reviewed all different kinds of magical books, uh, this guy Prelati uh, – uh, oh, I'm sorry, no – uh, Blanchett, having reviewed all of those books, uh, brought them to Gilly, right? Uh, the books were written by Perlati. And, and, and Gilly chose to initiate experiments. Uh, the first in the lower hall of his castle, he attempted to summon a demon named Baron. He also provided a contract with the demon for the riches that Perlati was to give to the demon later. He tried three times, okay? No demon manifested. And he grew super frustrated that it wasn't happening. Uh, 
Uh, so Prolati, the guy whose books he had, said that uh, this demon was angry and required the offering of parts of a child. Oh, this is getting terrible. So it's Gilly, like a giant turn. my friend <laughs> Gilly provided these remnants in a glass vessel at a future evocation, but still. The demon did not show up, man, and the occult experiments left him bitter and his wealth uh, his wealth severely depleted. In his confession, Gilly said that the first assault on a child occurred between spring of 40, uh, 1432 and spring of 1433. The first murders occurred uh, at Champ something. I don't know that place, uh, but there was no account I've of them that there. survived. Shortly after, he moved to another place where, according to his confession, he killed or ordered to be killed a large but uncertain number of children after he sodomized them. Oh, wow. The first, yeah, I'm telling you, man. The first documented case of child snatching and murder concerns a boy of 12 called Judon, an apprentice to the further, uh, to some guy. But Gilly's cousin uh, asked the furrier, this guy, to lend them the boy to take a message, right? Uh, for them yeah. to another town. And when he did not return, uh, Gilly and his friends said, uh, look, you know, I don't know. How do we know where he went? It's probably thieves that grabbed him and carried him off. Because back in those days, dude, you could be a kid walking down the street and body snatchers would snatch you. And it was about grabbing you and selling you into slavery, right? Right. Um, during his trial, the events were tested by uh, Hillaret and his wife. So Hillaret's the guy that went out there looking for, you know, sending this kid off. Um, they both say, also the boy's father spoke in, in this testimony, as well as five other people from the town. Um, dude, it is insane what he did. Like, so Gilly was found was found guilty right in his own confession he testified that when when they were dead he kissed them and and he would do things to them and i'm not going to go too in depth but like he cut them open he did all kinds of crazy things and it was it was horrific man people in that time were like what is happening this is a guy yeah, that people f- in this time would be the same way well yeah and right awful. and it's and this is a guy that fought side by side with Joan of Arc like he was a, like this was somebody that we looked up to man how is this even possible uh yeah, in May of 1440, he kidnapped a cleric, uh, and this is what made made all this information come out. So that that's how he got caught. Um, they found out all his stuff. There was all kinds of witness testimony. He was found guilty, and he ended up being executed by hanging and then burning. Uh, I'm sorry, no execution and hanging. Uh, uh by hanging and burning was set for Wednesday, 26 October, at nine o'clock. He and his two accomplices proceeded to the place of execution. He was said to have to have addressed the crowd with a contrite, pie, a pious and uh, statement. And he basically said that the other guys that are dying with him uh, are dying bravely. And he thanked them. Um, and so then his request to be the first to die uh, was granted at 11 o'clock. The brush uh, at 11 o'clock, he was set on fire and hung. His body was cut down before being consumed by the flames and claimed by four ladies of high rank for burial. This was Gilly DeRay, the man that fought side by side uh, with Joan of Arc, made himself a name in France's history, in French history, uh, only to go down in disgrace uh, in demonology and child murder and abduction. That's a giant, I mean, this is putting it mildly, a giant fall from grace. Yeah, I would say that took quite the U-turn. Yeah, 100%. 
So now I'm glad that you're going to do something fun because like you're hearing all this stuff and you're like, holy cow, this guy did a lot of stuff, right? Look, how great was his life and look at the things he did. Then even the odd stuff, right? Okay, cool. He's an eccentric. He's spending all his money. He's writing a play that lasts 17 years and a million lines. Like, like who cares, right? Wait, right. Demons? Children? Children being murdered? Uh, no. Yeah, that's uh, that's a tough one. Uh, mine's a, a a totally different affair. <laughs> uh, let's let's uh, get in our old uh, that's odd time machine again, and we're going to head to the early nineteen uh, teens, uh, around the World War One era. Uh, we're going to meet a young man by the name of Harry Colburn. Harry Colburn uh, grew up just loving animals. You know, I think most of us can kind of uh, uh, you know relate to that i love animals chris i know you love animals oh yeah for sure for me i'm always about animal farm bro four legs better than two legs <laughs> yes yes four legs good two books. legs bad that's right I, that's a book i actually enjoyed reading in school right? I was forced to read. and then when you yeah. get older you realize like all the political undertones to it and you're like holy cow oh, there yeah. was a lot happening yeah. there but when you're a kid you're like oh man the animals should win <laughs> yeah that's a heavy book once you realize everything that's going on uh so harry colburn loved animals uh, when he turned 18, he decided he wanted to go to school for that. So he immigrates to Canada to go to the Ontario Veterinary uh, Veterinary College, Veterinarian mm-hmm. College, uh, in 1911. So that's kind of the era we're dealing with right now, 1911. Uh, he moved to Winnipeg, like Winnipeg, Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, that's about the time when World War One breaks out. Ah, yeah. So uh, he enlists uh, into the army, into the Canadian army there, and he boards a train that's going to go to Quebec to where he will go to training. Uh, So now we're in the year 1914. He's on this train uh, that's on its way uh, to where he needs to go for his his army training here. But, you know, just like... Just like uh, airplanes, sometimes you got to make a stop. It's not a direct route, and then, so they stop in a place called White River, Ontario, on August twenty fourth, and this is where Lieutenant Harry Colburn uh, sees something that will kind of change everything for him. And what he sees, especially back then, it even kind of happens now at airports and at train stations. Uh, you know, you have people there trying to sell goods. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this, or have so you ever, real quick, sorry, side note here. Have no, you ever like, done this thing where people do that, right, in crowds? Have you ever had a thing where somebody comes up to you and gives you a pen or something and attached to it is a little piece of paper that says something about them being deaf and they would accept a donation? Yes. Yeah. Dude, one time we were in New York City, right? And yeah. there was somebody out at the parks doing that, and they just kind of handed me a pen, and I grabbed it and said thank you, and kept walking, thinking it was just like this, oh, have a nice day kind of thing. They chased me <laughs> down, and was like like pointing at the paper so I could see what it said. Now I was like, and then you know how you feel like such a dick when you're just like, oh yeah, no, no cash, and you just give them their pen back. What makes you feel any better? It's probably a scam anyway. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> anyway, all right, back to the story. Yeah. 19, 1900s here. Uh, World yeah, 1914. War nineteen fourteen. This is nineteen fourteen. Trench warfare. His train, his train pulls in. Yeah, we're going to get to that. Ooh. His train pulls in, and that's where he sees this trapper, right? This trapper was trying to sell 
this seven-month-old black bear cub. Can I ask you something? Yes, you can. Was he a freestyle trapper or just one of these trappers that are trying to sell the wares at the... It it probably depends. I bet he started out a freestyle trapper, and that's how he got recognized. Like and, <laughs> He traps uh, off but, the dome? Yeah, and, you know, just right off the top of his head, he's just <laughs> trapping left and right and dropping bars. <laughs> So, okay, so, like, when when I'm talking about people selling stuff or the way you are, like, when they're in these, you know, they're trying to sell this, uh, hey, I make handmade necklaces. This guy's selling right. a bear? A bear. Apparently, he had, uh, he was out trapping stuff, like trappers, trappers do. Yeah. And uh, he had killed the mama bear, but he <laughs> couldn't bring himself to kill the little baby. But I guess he could bring himself to make money off of it. That's, that's street cred right there. That's a, that's yeah. a legit freestyle trapper. Yeah, yeah, killed a bear. Uh, so he sells this bear because uh, Lieutenant Colbert couldn't get the bear out of his mind. He couldn't leave without this bear uh, for twenty dollars. So for twenty bucks, uh, Colburn buys this seven-month-old black bear, and he names the bear after where, where uh, his hometown of Winnipeg. So the bear's name is Winnipeg. Winnipeg, the black bear. So while he's training, right? So he goes on. He takes the bear with him. Uh, so he goes on to on to Quebec to continue his actual army training, and while he's training, this bear uh, follows him around everywhere. So it's pretty much became his mom, right? Like the the bear thinks of him as his mo- as her mom. And let's put this into into perspective real quick. He spent twenty dollars on a, a a wild animal as a pet. So I don't. I looked it up real quick as you were. I was saying that. Twenty dollars in nineteen fourteen is equivalent to four hundred and ninety dollars in two thousand seventeen. That's not really going out of your. I mean, I've seen people spend upwards of a thousand dollars for a pet. Yeah, it's still expensive. Yeah, but yeah, but at least he's got a pet that like looks at him loyal, right, and comes around and follows him and does all this. Oh yeah, they they were kind of inseparable. Aww. Apparently, it came to a point where even when he was sleeping in his cot right underneath his cot, you'd find a Winnipeg just sleeping right there underneath him. Oh my gosh, that's so awesome. Is that not adorable? That is amazing. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so uh, uh, she quickly became really popular with the other soldiers too, and they kind of adapted her. I mean, adopted her as as their mascot. This happened a lot during the World War One, World yeah. War Two. There'd be uh, mainly it was dogs usually yep. uh, that would uh, they would kind of adopt. But it was in other places. Apparently, in this one, like this one, it was a a baby black bear. Yeah, I've heard a lot about in World War One uh, horses. They 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 do that as well with horses. Yes, yes, big time. Because horses were uh, a major asset in World War One. And for uh, listeners, so, yeah, I wanted to just say real quick for listeners that might not be like familiar when when you're thinking World War One, that like you can't think World War Two where you see like you know the Japanese bombers or or the the warships on the seas or tanks and things. We're talking about if you go back and if you go watch Wonder Woman, like that thing, the trench warfare. Yeah, uh, you know we, where they're just kind of lobbing hand those, grenades. Yeah. We had those things, but they're in their infancy. Oh yeah, like the tanks were ridiculous yeah. then back, back then. Yeah, yeah, and just think, really, we'd only been having, we'd only had airplanes for like a decade at most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're talking what Red Baron style days. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So let's go to October of the same year, and this is when Colburn is sent overseas to England for more training and instruction. And of course, he takes. Uh, Winnipeg, the bear with him. Oh, that's so awesome, dude. I was going to say, oh, man, did he have to leave Winnipeg behind? No, no. Uh, so, you know, of course, she's still their adopted, you know, pet pretty much all the – she's very tame by this time because she grew up with 
you know, with people the whole time. Uh, seven weeks later, though, this is when he gets the really terrible news. But oh, he was no. he, knew, he knew it was going to happen, uh, that he's getting transferred to the Western Front in France. So he's going to war. Uh, there's, of course, I don't know if people realize how bad the Western Front was. I mean, All Quiet on the Western Front is a very good book. I highly recommend it. Uh, so it's it kind of just, it, it, de- it depicts the trench warfare, as Chris had mentioned earlier, and how just terribly brutal it was. Yeah. So, in other words, it's no place for a bear. Mm-mm. So, what's Colburn going to do? I don't know, but uh, this is making me sad. I thought you said this was going to be fun. December 9th, 1914, Colburn decides that there's no way he can take Winnipeg with him. And he wants her to be safe. He loves that bear. So, oh my God. instead, the London Zoo had just opened up a whole new area all about bears. And he made a deal with them where they would kind of keep and look after the bear, and uh, he could, and uh, they would take care of her while he was gone. And then he could, when he was, you know, hopefully he would survive and he could take the bear back with him home. So that was the deal they kind of set. Dude, up. that's so heartbreaking because it's not like they have you know social media nowadays where he could pull out his cell phone and just check like the update status. Oh, look at she looks, you know, she's looking happy with the workers there. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. he leaves her be and then has to maybe correspond with them and wait weeks and weeks before he hears an answer back. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's you know, it's truly, I mean, even even our mail service back then, you know, it was yeah. not near as what it is now. Yeah. So Colburn does that. He drops her off. They have a tearful, you know, goodbye. And he goes to war. And it's during this time when he's at war, he's actually almost killed a couple times. He gets very lucky. Uh, and he's actually part of the Royal Canadian Army Veterinary Corps, and their mainly uh, their main goal is to kind of take care of the horses. That's mainly what he would do. He would kind of keep the horses healthy. Uh, but whenever they said anytime he got leave, because you know they would get grant leave every once in a while, and it was precious. So whenever he would be granted leave, he would go visit Winnipeg at the London Zoo. Aww. So he did get to see her a couple times. That's awesome. But while he was doing this. Winnipeg became insanely popular because not only was she really tame, she was also very well behaved and she became a giant hit with kids, especially because the kids could even feed her out of their own hands and they knew that it would be okay. Uh, so this, so she gets, she becomes a big star. She's huge. And the war ends. Finally, it comes to an end and Colburn survives. He survives the war. So he goes, of course, to the London zoo. But then he's got this big decision, Chris. What's he going to do? He he learns about how much the kids at the London Zoo loves right. Winnipeg. How proud he should be, right? Yeah, and he is proud. But he has a hard decision. I mean, he loves he loves her. Is he going to take her with him, or is he going to leave her there because she's kind of become a part of the city and a part of you know, that whole area there. She's sort of become London's bear now. Right. Can I ask you something? Is there any kind of documentation as to their reunion? Was it like we see when you get these like super happy videos that make you realize someone's cutting onions when like somebody was away at war, like, and they come home and their dogs go so happy for them. You can see that they just want to jump out of their own skins. They're so happy. There's a lot of pictures of her and him. Uh, so you can actually look those up. There's quite a few. I found a couple of them. I want to imagine that's what she did. She saw him and she got so happy and started dancing around yeah. and wiggling her body and went running all the way up to him. Yeah. What uh, is he so, going to do? What the, dude, I'm on the edge of my seat. What's he going to do? 
he makes this giant sacrifice <sighs> and he leaves the bear because he sees how these kids just adore Winnipeg. Oh my God. I don't know that so I could do very, that. I yeah. might've been selfish. <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was fairly huge of him. I'd have been like, uh, fuck you, kids. That's my bear. <laughs> <laughs> Just flip him off. <laughs> and take my bear away, like walk back. away and be like, oh, want to pet him? <laughs> nope, it's mine. Keep walking. Well, Keep walking, kid. Thankfully for those kids, he he was not here. <laughs> <laughs> so Colburn would actually go on back to Canada, and he would go on to open his own small animal hospital. And he had a pretty great life. But what happened to Winnipeg the Bear? Let's find out. Uh, why am I telling you all this about Winnipeg the Bear? I mean, this is a long thing about a bear that was, at most so far, a popular zoo animal. Well, I thought that, slash... was, the, I thought that was the odd part, was that this, this guy and him developed a friend. Like, I thought that there's more? There's more. This gets even more odd. There's a twist coming, Chris. Uh, and that twist is uh, the bear itself, herself... Uh, lives a great life. She actually lives to be about twenty twenty one, which apparently is a a good long life for a bear for her Holy type cow. of bear. Apparently, uh, she has a great life. She becomes really famous and popular. Kids love her. Uh, one of those kids is A. A. Milton's. I'm probably saying his last name wrong. Son, and his son would constantly beg him to take him to the zoo to see the bear. He loved that bear. Oh, and that kid's name, Christopher Robin. Shut the fuck up. What? The bear's nickname? Winnie. Bro. Short for, bro, you know, look short at, for Winnie Peg. Okay, look. Uh, we're going to bring guys into our, our, our basement again. Anthony, uh, a friend of ours, is here listening to us. I've got goosebumps on my arm when you said that. Oh, my God. That's awesome. What? I've never heard the story of Winnie the Pooh. So that's where Winnie the Pooh was born because Christopher Robin loved that bear so much that he had a teddy bear at home and he named that teddy bear Winnie the Pooh, Winnie after Winnipeg the bear. And Pooh was actually came from, they actually had a swan that they would always feed. And a Pooh was like a term of endearment for their area oh at the time. So Winnie the God. Pooh was born. And then the dude that wrote the story about Christopher Robin and his bear was, didn't, did he know he was writing about a bear that really existed, you think? Yeah, oh yeah, that's where he got it from. Oh, I never saw yeah. this movie, so I don't know. Like I know there's a movie about it, so I don't know what the real story is behind them, but dude, that is the coolest dude. I didn't know that. I'm that's I'm a very I'm happy. This is a fun episode. I told you I was gonna hit it very happy. Man, that's so good. <laughs> that's so good. That makes up for the darkness from earlier. Yeah. Man, that's so good. Man. So that's that's how we got the legendary uh, Winnie the Pooh. So good. I hope listeners at home who didn't know that had the same reaction that I had. I hope that like they're literally having car accidents because they got so enraptured <laughs> in the story. Let's not go that far. Please they're falling off the treadmill because they forgot to keep stepping. They go. were just thro- thrown off by the story, right? Uh, I don't know. What else do you do while you're listening to a podcast? They fell into the toilet. Well, <laughs> yeah. There you go. Oh, man. Dude, that is so cool. I love that. That's probably my favorite of all of our That's Odd stories so far. Yeah, I got very lucky. I was watching um, Mysteries at the Museum, oh, and it so kind of good. pointed me towards there. And then I went from there, and I was like, I really wanted to study this. So I, I jumped into it, and this actually has quite a – there's a lot of places you can go. I found a lot of stuff on the History Channel's website uh, to uh, all kinds of articles. There's actually a whole book about this, too. That's so amazing. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's an incredible story. I really loved it. Winnipeg the Bear 
uh, kind of becomes the world's treasure in a way yeah, thanks to Winnie the Pooh. No kidding. How awesome, dude. And I'll tell you what, uh, for, for listeners that might not know the show, if you've not checked out Mysteries at the Museum, man, what a good show. I'll tell you, I'm not ashamed to say, I've gotten some ideas for episodes based on that show. Yeah, uh, definitely check it out when you get a chance. They play literally all the time. So. Heck yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, all right, man. Well, that's a great way to end this episode. Um, I think I'm going to keep the lights on in the Creeper Clubhouse today. It it's just feels like a, a, a light, airy day. Open the windows, open the door, let let sunshine in, uh, and let's all go back and remember what, what Winnie the Pooh was like, right? I like it. Let's do it. I'm a, I'm a big Eeyore fan. All right, my friend. I'm done. I'm finished, too. All right. You want to take us out? Woohoo!